This week on Geek Explained, we're wrapping up July by taking a closer look at Tom Taylor's friendly neighborhood Spider-Man as part of our latest edition of the Geek Explained Spotlight. Welcome back to Geeksplained. I'm your host, Eric Ozana, and today's episode is the latest edition of our Geeksplained Spotlight series, where every month we take a look at a specific graphic novel, limited series, uh, run on a book, whatever, and we talk about why I love it. Uh, last year, we kind of kicked it off, um, whether I remember calling it that or not uh you'd have to go back in the archives and check that out um but last year we kicked off the spotlight series with spider-man blue at the very end of july 2019 and even though it feels like 10 years ago at this point um i wanted to mark the occasion by doing another spotlight for another spidey book and i have been uh recommended this book for a very long time especially by our good friend of the podcast malcolm over on the uh, uh heroes and villains in tucson shout out to him shout out to that shop they're incredible and uh it's friendly neighborhood spider-man by tom taylor and juan cabal uh, he's been trying to get me to read this book for probably at least a year year and a half so i'm really excited to just jump into talking about this i finally uh dove in read all 14 issues and i'm excited to talk about it with you this week uh we also have our latest weekly review on the newest episode of season two of doom patrol and of course course this week's comics countdown but before we get into all of that let's check in with this week's news All right, guys and dolls, so we got some news for you this week. Uh, four categories, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous. And following up on last week, we've got news in all four categories. It's, it's an exciting time as we're heading into the latter half of the summer. Uh, we're going to start off with miscellaneous news, uh, and it's all video game news here. I'm really excited to talk about this. Um, Xbox to kind of, I guess, compete with the PlayStation. Um, I forget what the event was, but they showcased a bunch of stuff, talked about the PlayStation 5. Uh, Xbox had the Xbox Showcase, where they were basically showing off um, Xbox Series X stuff, some Xbox exclusives, and overall, it wasn't quite as... Um, it wasn't quite as newsworthy... I would say, as the PlayStation one. Um, but they did show a couple, I mean, quite a few different trailers, but the ones that I was most excited about and the ones that caught my eye was first we finally got some gameplay for Halo Infinite, it's the next game in the Halo franchise, and it is promised to be basically like an open-world soft reboot for the franchise, and 
I mean, I personally, uh, I have made it, I think, abundantly clear that I am no good at first-person shooters, but I do enjoy the Halo franchise, so I'll be checking this out. The gameplay looks pretty good. Um, the traversal is really interesting. There's like a grappling hook sort of thing. Um, they've got the warthogs. They've got all different types of enemies. It's looking very classic Halo, very classic enemies, very classic setup, very classic um, chief, but it looks beautiful looks beautiful on the xbox series x hardware and i'm excited to see exactly what they do with it they also showed a reveal trailer for a new fable game now for those of you young whippersnappers who don't know what fable is uh way 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 back in the distant time of the early 2000s when xbox was really starting to kick into high gear um fable was this franchise that was kind of the first not okay it wasn't the first of its kind but it was the first hugely mainstream rpg like it was you started off as a child you grew into an old person uh you made choices that uh, affected the endings and the world around you and it was pretty revolutionary for its time um the follow-up games weren't quite as good but it was a staple of the xbox uh when it was coming out and it's you know it's gone away after uh, the last game, which I think rightfully so, the Fable games kind of fell off of what really made them special. Uh, but I'm excited to see what they do with this. We have really, um, we don't really have like a full-on like fantasy RPG going on right now. I can't think of one off the top of my head. Someone is probably shouting at me like, oh, it's this or it's this. But the kind of... Um, game that the fable games were fits in really really well with today's gaming landscape so i'm excited to see what they do with fable and then also big gaming news um we got a teaser on twitter from a long thought dead account and that is the announcement that g4 will be returning in 2021 uh, again for you whippersnappers that don't know what g4 is uh g4 used to be what ign is now like g4 was like the all-encompassing gaming channel this is where uh you would go if you wanted gaming news or you wanted to see big reveals or you wanted um different game shows based around gaming or talk shows stuff like that um G4 was the place to go. Also, for those of you who are American Ninja Warrior fans, G4 was the place that showed the original Ninja Warrior, also known as Sasuke, in Japan, where they basically um, took all of the Sasuke episodes, put them on G4 with um, American subtitles. It was fantastic. That's how I discovered the show. I love it so much, and I'm really excited about G4 coming back. I'm curious on what the format is going to be because uh with everything being how it is right now um a weekly show or a network um kind of based around that i think is going to have to do a lot to set itself apart from stuff like ign nowadays so i'm really excited and i'm also excited if you're a wrestling fan because austin creed also known as xavier woods in wwe is campaigning hard to be the new host of g4 and i and the rest of the uh fine folks here at geek explained which i guess is basically just me um endorse 
Austin Creed. Austin Creed is an incredible, incredible performer, great entertainer, a die-hard, lifelong video game fan, and so I hope that G4 does the right thing and hires Austin Creed. Um, moving on to, let's do film news. So film news, we got two pieces here, uh, both comic book film news. Uh, first off, New Mutants got a new trailer over the weekend. This was supposed, this was basically Comic-Con at home. Um, nothing really happened because all the big heavy hitters kind of pulled out of Comic-Con. Uh, but we got a New Mutants panel that was pre-recorded and it was okay. Um, but we got a new trailer that looks fantastic as it has the entire time uh they even poked fun at all the many release dates and kind of doubled down on its current release date which is august 28th they are sticking to that i don't know how i feel about it um it seems like they are gonna just release it in theaters and hope for the best i still think the best thing for it is to release it on streaming uh specifically disney plus you know we've been waiting a very long time for this film so um, I'll be watching it whenever it comes out, whether it's in theater, on streaming, whatever, on August 28th, or if it gets pushed back three more times. So I'm excited. The trailer looks great. Everyone looks fantastic in it, and I'm really excited to see what they do with the film. And then also over the weekend was Zack Snyder's Justice Con. Um, it was exactly what you think it would be, uh, but Zack Snyder did debut a clip from the Snyder Cut that is supposed to be releasing next year, featuring Superman uh, post-rebirth uh, showing up to speak with Alfred, and he was wearing the black suit. I, I, I mean, it looks good. It looks fine. Um, I'm not a fan of the black suit when it comes to, like, my preferred Superman. I get it. Um, I get that, you know, they're trying to make this as different from uh, the Warner Brothers cut of Justice League as possible. And apparently I read somewhere that the reason that uh, Superman's costume was so shiny, which was a criticism that I had when the film came out, uh, it's it's weirdly shiny, like compared to the previous ones, was because he wanted to leave the option open to make his costume uh, the black suit in post, which is cool. It's just a cool little detail, and if it's true, uh, incredible foresight on his part. But I've just I'm a big fan of the red and blue. So um, clip looks fine. Um, doesn't really show us anything we didn't already see. So kudos to them. But it was something nice for Snyder to show to his fans and, you know, continuing the conversation to keep the hype going for the Snyder Cut next year. Moving on to TV news, uh, also at uh, San Diego Comic-Con at home, uh, we got a new trailer for Hellstrom, the Hulu series that is still associated with Marvel and is still coming out. Um, it looks fine. They're really dipping into the horror aspect. It gave me, okay, this is going to sound weird, but it gave me Swamp Thing vibes. I know it doesn't have anything to do with anything even close to Swamp Thing, but the way that they're treating it with the horror aspect, the supernatural part of it, it does feel a little Swamp Thing to me, which is fine. I liked Swamp Thing, and I will at least check out the first episode of this show, but it's not something that I think is going to set itself apart going forward. So hopefully they kind of find their voice and find their standing. And then 
Netflix announced this week that The Witcher, while it's still kind of preparing for season two, uh, as well as an animated series that's supposed to tie in, is also getting another tie-in series. Witcher Blood Origins will be debuting on Netflix and is a six-episode prequel set 1,200 years in the past. Um, This is cool. Uh, If they're able to get this off the ground before Game of Thrones gets their prequel series off the ground, I will laugh so hard. Um, But I'm glad that Netflix is really kind of going all in on The Witcher. I really enjoyed the first season. You can listen to a little bit of my uh, first thoughts on the season in one of our older episodes. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to seeing um, them kind of build out this Witcherverse with their several different shows. And I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, how exactly this show is going to both set itself apart from the first season as well as kind of tie into that first season. And then finally in comics news, we got a lot of stuff to talk about. It's only three pieces of news, but it's a lot. So um, starting off with Tom Taylor. Tom Taylor, one of my favorite uh, comic writers in general uh, right now, one of my favorite modern writers in the genre, has been teasing some stuff. Um, He has been just knocking things out of the park with Deceased, with this week's uh, Spotlight, the main course, which is uh, Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man. And most recently, he has been tapped for Marvel's Dark Age event, which is basically Marvel Y2K it seems like. Um, But Tom Taylor has been teasing this week that we may see a return to the thing that put him on the map, which is Injustice. Tom Taylor helmed the Injustice franchise in the comics, uh, basically took that from a fun video game idea into its own entire world, and he has been teasing this week a return to that Earth, uh, with basically posting up a letter each day, as we can assume, uh, spelling out injustice, first the I, then the N, along with quotes from various characters. I'm really excited to see what they do, uh, whether this is the next installment in the game franchise, which he has also had a hand in, whether this is a new limited series, whether somebody threw out Injustice versus Deceased, and that would be really interesting. Um, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to seeing what they do here. And now for some not-so-great comics news. Uh, These two pieces kind of tie together, but uh, DC has officially canceled the Warren Ellis, Declan Shalvey Batman series. Warren Ellis has been the uh, focus of a lot of sexual harassment uh, allegations, and he has been basically blacklisted from a lot of projects because of the um, accusations of sexual misconduct and all this stuff. And it sucks because I was really looking forward to seeing uh, Declan Shalvey draw Batman. He's one of my favorite artists going right now and seeing him kind of getting hamstrung by this because the writer is a garbage person really sucks. But, um, It is what it is. I'm glad that DC is taking this stance against someone who is uh, perpetuating a very toxic environment, and comics shouldn't be that way. Speaking of a toxic comics environment, uh, Dynamite, the publishing company, has uh, come under fire for its support of Comicsgate. I don't want to get into Comicsgate. 
I don't like Comic Skate. I'm making my stance very clear here. Comic Skate is not uh, something that I ascribe to. I don't appreciate Comic Skate. Comic Skate has been incredibly toxic and just bad people. Just bad people a lot all around. Um, and Dynamite, in putting forth support of Comic Skate, has gotten rightfully a lot of uh, backlash and they are basically reaping what they sow when it comes to that. However, this does have uh, negative consequences on some of the creators involved with that company. Uh, specifically, Jai Lee. Jai Lee, another incredible artist, uh, one of the great Asian artists that is uh, more mainstream in comics, has come under fire um, falsely. Because Tom King made an accusation that he was part of Comicsgate because of his work with Dynamite. And uh, Jiley had done like a variant cover for Tom King's Rorschach series. Which you would think uh, a Rorschach series would be right up Comicsgate's alley, but whatever. Um, Tom King made some accusations, tried to get uh, Jiley's cover pulled. Since then he has uh, apologized and has... Um, uh, contacted Jai Lee, but Jai Lee has said that, you know, he's, he's, everything is not okay. Everything's not cool because Tom King did inadvertently almost ruin his career. So that sucks. Um, it sucks that it came from misunderstanding. Um, Tom King, I am a big defender of Tom King with all of his, uh, his views, his comics, his controversial, uh, impact on the world of comics. But I do agree that he needs to, Apologize. He needs to um, face some sort of repercussion for almost ruining a man's career. Uh, I support both of these creators. I don't think there is a um, a right answer to this, but the way that we can start to head towards that is by making amends and by um, making things right with Jaili. So I hope that Tom King does the right thing when it comes to that. Um, it sucks to kind of get our news like end our news on a downward note but we are going to move on into something that i am excited about something very positive which is our main segment of the week the entree if you will which is our latest geek explain spotlight on tom taylor and Wong cabal's friendly neighborhood spider-man 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 friendly neighborhood spider-man well then fame he's ignored Action is his reward Look out Here comes the Spider-Man Spider-Man, Spider-Man Friendly neighborhood Spider-Man Spider-Man has been the focus of a lot of comics since his inception uh, He's arguably the most popular comics character um, Just solo by himself Maybe only rivaled by Superman or Batman um, and he has endured through a lot. Um, since he was created in 1963, he has been just everywhere and done all kinds of things, from street-level crimes to galactic conquests to secret wars, uh, threatening the existence of the multiverse as a whole. Um, and it's really easy to just kind of slot Spider-Man into his Avenger status. Everybody knows who Spider-Man is. He's... He's the guy who's always cracking jokes while the world is ending, and it's easy to, I think, kind of forget that Spider-Man started very grounded. He started at a very street level, not fighting to save the world, just trying to fight to save queens. And 
at this point in time in the Kermit current Kermit the current <laughs> comics landscape uh Spider-Man's got a lot going on he's got an incredible run going on right now with uh, Nick Spencer and Ryan Otley uh, on Amazing Spider-Man. He's showing up in Avengers books. He's got crossovers going on. There's even uh, tie-in comics like uh, Symbiote Spider-Man. And you might be forgiven for forgetting that at his core, Spider-Man is a friendly neighborhood hero. And those are kind of the stories that I really enjoy when it comes to Spider-Man, the more street-level stuff. Um, That's why I enjoy characters like Iron Fist, Luke Cage, Daredevil, um, the Netflix Defenders. And I always thought, first of all, as a side note, that they really just missed the bar by not having Spider-Man be part of that Defenders to really elevate that team and also ground him as a character. Um, Hopefully, if the rumors are true that uh, Charlie Cox and John Bernthal may... transcend the Netflix closure, the end of uh, Earth N, and make their way into the MCU, retaining their characters. Um, It would be fantastic to have them all pal up together because their stories are fantastic together. But um, with all of the gigantic, larger-than-life Spider-Man stories, it's kind of nice at some point to sit back and look at Spider-Man as just part of a friendly neighborhood. And that is what is done and accomplished and accomplished well with this month's Geek Explain Spotlight, which is Tom Taylor and Wonka Ball's Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man. It's a 14-issue limited series, uh, and it's amazing. Uh, First off, just want to quickly just talk about the creators that are... um, Involved with this, the mainstays, the big, you know, heavy hitters for this run, Tom Taylor, I've said before, one of my favorite modern comic book writers who is still putting in a ton of work. He's like the Chip Zdarsky for uh, DC right now, just knocking things out of the park one after the other. Um, Him and Chip Zdarsky and a few others right now are just killing it in the comics game, and this is no exception. I will uh, admit that when this book was coming out on a month-to-month basis, I was a little burned out with Spider-Man comics. Um, They had just kind of wrapped up the the incredible follow-up to the Superior Spider-Man. There was all kinds of events going on, Spider-Verse, Spider-Verse 2, there was um, a bunch of spider Spider-Man books. And so I was like, I don't want to put my time into another Spider-Man book that is going to be just dealing with street-level stuff. And I am kicking myself now for not having jumped on this sooner because this is a fantastic book. Tom Taylor, just like when writing Superman, just like when writing anybody, knows exactly what is at the heart of this character. And it is accompanied by beautiful art with Wonka Ball. Wonka Ball was not someone that I was familiar with prior to reading this book, but now I will jump on anything that he is currently uh, an artist on because he is just fantastic. And what really sells this book, aside from the writing, aside from the art, are the characters. And something that makes this really a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man is not just the stories of Spider-Man, it's the stories of the friendly neighborhood. The characters that are involved that make up his supporting cast here. I'm going to go through a quick list of them, just highlights that I really enjoyed. Um, 
Jose, Gracie, and Miguel are a group of, are a, just a trio of homeless people. We don't actually get a lot of time with them, but in the short amount of time we do get with them, uh, you get so much, like, character. You get so much, um world building and so much fleshing out this world this neighborhood feels lived in um spider-man saves a father and his daughter from a car crash uh the father tries to give him money for saving them say like oh we have plenty and uh spidey's just like you know what there's a group on this on the corner of this street and this street uh jose gracie and miguel um get if you want to pay me back send some of your generosity to them and then as peter parker later on he runs into them and they're like oh my god look at this money that this guy gave us we're buying you lunch and spider and peter's just like no you don't have to do that and uh the guy the uh the group is like you know what you're always so kind to us when um when we are feeling down, we're going to buy you a hot dog. And it's just one of those moments. Um, it's the thing that I really, really liked about um, uh, Spider-Man Homecoming. The way that it felt so friendly neighborhood. The way that it felt very um, uh, very inclusive and very small. Very street level. And I enjoy those kind of stories. So I really liked them. Uh, Leilani. Leilani and her two kids, who are members of Under York, who we'll get to in a second, um, are also really nice. Uh, Peter meets them after uh, an exchange with his neighbor, which we will get to, um, and finds out that she is the escaped uh, heir, basically the daughter of the ruler of Under. Under York, which is the city underneath New York. Um, and she escaped with her two kids because her father, the person who runs the Undercity, uh, wants to make her son his heir. And he is a tyrannical dictator who lords over the city, and she didn't want that life. So I really like the, um, honestly, the completely uh, normal aspect of their meeting. Uh Peter and his neighbor Marnie are talking about uh, the girl, you know, the girl down the hall, Leilani. Um, he heard she heard her crying, and so she told Peter, you know, bring bring some apples to her, just check on her. And this kind of kicks off this whole, um, really, this whole story, this whole run, because the um, the underlying story of Under York, Leilani, uh, the ruler of Under York, is really the through line through the whole series from beginning to end, and I really enjoy that. Um, Leilani's great. She's a great character who is trying to carve a new path for her children. She doesn't want her children to grow up um, under the same tyrannical rule that she did, and she doesn't want her children to be turned into the monsters that her father is. And so this kind of story of nature versus nurture that is... Uh, woven into Leilani's character I think is really compelling and really nice and something that we don't see often enough when it comes to these superhero stories you know the idea that you are supposed to overcome your background your upbringing to become the best version of yourself I think is a lesson that we should see in comics more often I know that it is uh input uh, or it is um, put into specific comics here and there, but I would like it to be more widespread as a lesson because I think it's super important. Um, the Sevens family I want to talk about as well because they are brought in immediately into the first issue. Uh, the father and the daughter are 
the uh, characters that Spidey saves from the car crash. They're just moving into uh, into New York, and they are very kind. I love the interaction when um, Spidey saves the daughter because he you know he touches down, brings the daughter back to uh, her father, and he's holding her, and she's like, "Oh my God, ew!" And she tries to squish the uh, spider symbol on his uh on his chest and it's something that is so obvious but something i've never seen before and maybe they've done it before in the comics but off the top of my head i can't think of a time that they've done that uh spidey even comments he's like yeah i just i guess my my costume isn't really kid friendly and when he leaves them uh to go swing off into his day the dad's like thanks spider-man and the daughter's like you will be squished and this little like interaction that he has with her kind of running through the comic as well um is just fantastic and we see them uh often throughout this run because the mother whose name is shari uh she is a new detective brought in uh to the local precinct and develops a very uh jim gordon batman-esque relationship with spidey and she immediately is just like you saved my family i owe you we're gonna work together and even spider-man is taken aback by this which i love it's the kind of thing that i really enjoyed in uh into the spider-verse where peter was like surprised that people are helping him because he's not used to it i love that aspect of the character and again i would like to see that used more often because spider-man um is this kind of character that he can't show his face so there's immediate distrust he's trying to do his best but some people will still not be fans of him and so having this idea of spidey kind of feeling alone when it comes to uh, his relationship with law enforcement i think is really well done and the uh, effect of bringing shari in to be this person who is on his side, has his back, even against some of her fellow officers, I think is really refreshing, and I would love to see it used more often. And Shari's a badass, too. She's just a really great character who doesn't take any shit. She's willing to help out Spider-Man when he needs it, but won't... um, won't uh, sacrifice her principles when it comes to helping out uh, costume vigilantes. It's the same thing that I really liked about Kirsten McDuffie in the uh, Daredevil Mark Wade run. Uh, they're very similar characters, and that might just be because I'm rereading that run right now, and I'm just, I love her character so much. Um, but I really liked Shari Sevens, and I hope that we get to see her more often. Um, even the interactions between uh, Spidey and her later on, um, when he goes to meet her family after um new york think thinks he's dead uh shari and her daughter just her daughter is so cute it's so amazing i love i love her so much um you know spidey is presumed dead because he's shot by one of the assassins from under york um he shows up at the house and the daughter is just like they told me you weren't dead and this would be a pretty uh pretty elaborate lie if so, and just the the real, the little like friendly rivalry they have is really really fun and really cute. Um, but Shari Simmons does end up being an invaluable ally across the story when it comes to getting him information, getting him backup, just helping him you know solve these crimes, solve this conspiracy of Under York. It's just really really well done. And then the last member of the friendly neighborhood that is new to this story is Marnie. I love marnie i'm going to make just a general statement um that may or may not be true but um 
as just kind of like a side note, I don't believe that Marnie was envisioned as an Asian character at the beginning of the story. Uh, just the way that she's drawn is very like older white woman. Um, but as we get to learn more about her, as she she is revealed as a superpowered individual known as the Rumor. Um, and as we learn more about her past, we do find out that she was a, um, a Japanese uh, member of the Super Soldier Project in Japan. Uh, Tokyo, I guess, did human experimentation to try and match up with the firepower that was coming out from, uh, from America with the uh, debut of Captain America. And so she was given super strength, invulnerability, um, all the basic like superhuman tacits. Um, and she actually worked alongside Captain America when she left the country to fight f with him. And I love this. I love the idea that Cap had this uh, Japanese, um, this Japanese partner over the course of the war, alongside the invaders, alongside Bucky, alongside um, the Human Torch, Namor. I just, I love that. I love that they, f I love whenever they go back into World War II and they flesh out more of that time. That's a time that I think needs, I would love a 12-issue maxi-series of just the war itself. We get lots of great, incredible stories of Cap, um, coming out of the ice, dealing with modern day, being this confident soldier. But I would love to get more stories about Cap while he's learning to become Captain America during the one of the most um, difficult times in the history of the world. And I love that they, that Marnie was, you know, he was a prude. He was very much still unsure of himself and they touched on something that is really difficult to talk about which is the american japanese internment camps where during world war ii if you're not familiar um the u.s government decided that every um, person of asian or japanese descent could be utilized as a spy for the enemy and so they set up camps internment camps where um Asian Americans of all shape and size were kind of brought in and kept and held over the course of the war. And it is one of the darkest points of U.S. history that isn't talked about enough um, in schools. And I love that they brought that into this. I love that Tom Taylor and Wonka Ball brought that into this comic, into a mainstream character comic like Spider-Man talking about an issue like Japanese internment camps. Um, they show flashbacks where Marnie is talking to, uh, to Cap, who is still very much like he doesn't know what to do. He's like, you know, they sent me to uh, tell you about, you know, that you have to report in. Um, and she's like, you know, you know, this isn't right. He's like, I know if you run, I won't stop you. And Marty's like, no, like my people are need me in there more than, you know, you guys need me out here. And it does a great way in that explaining why she wasn't more uh, talked about during the war because she's very useful. She is a great character. Um, and I love that they explain that she doesn't get more um, attention because sh she spent most of the war in the camps. And Cap, you know, talks about, you know, and I love World War II Cap because he's much more unsure. He's still learning about himself. Um, Captain America is just like, you know, I, this isn't right. This isn't right. Uh, we're going to figure this out. I'm going to figure this out. And Marnie's like, it's okay. Um, 
and then bringing her forward as a much older woman who still packs a hell of a punch as kind of the person to tell Spidey about under your give him all of that uh, information. She reveals that she spent some time there. And it's just, again, it's fleshing out this neighborhood, fleshing out this world, but in a very um, intimate and localized setting. And I really, really enjoy that. And I love when you bring in Asian characters. As an Asian American comic book fan, I love seeing Asian characters show up, especially talking about something that is very important to talk about, even though it is a very complicated subject like the uh, Japanese internment camps. Um, But alongside these new localized, friendly neighborhood characters, we also get the, uh, we get to eat our, we get to uh, enjoy our cake and eat it too. Um, And that is by having not just local uh, street level characters, but also involving much larger Marvel superheroes, you know, from the get-go, from early on, uh, Pete's friendship with Johnny Storm, the Human Torch, is spotlighted. And I love their friendship so much. Uh, something that I really loved about the Ultimate Universe was that the trio of Pete, uh, of Spider-Man, uh, Human Torch, and Iceman was kind of a mainstay in that universe and kind of pulled three different sides of the uh, Marvel Universe together. And I would love to see more of that. But I still love the idea that Johnny Storm and Peter Parker are best friends. Um, Human Torch is brought in to watch the kids, uh, watch Leilani's kids while Peter deals with her disappearance. Um, And I love that they're just like, you know, we've never heard of Spider-Man. You know, he's like, oh, well, I mean, you're pretty sheltered, so you don't really know about many superheroes. And then Human Torch comes flying in. They're like, oh, my God, Johnny Storm, Human Torch. And oh, it's so great. Spider-Man's just like, my feelings. It it hurts so bad. Um, and it just, again, gives a new layer to uh, Spider-Man's uh, character. I love the um, underdog imposter syndrome that Spider-Man has, and I don't think they talk about that enough. The fact that he feels so small when compared to other superheroes. And again, you know, just... And it's a testament to the storytelling here that they are bringing new and exciting uh, elements of his character and really just showing them off for the world to see. Um, Alongside Johnny Storm, the greater Fantastic Four is also brought in uh, to deal with Under York and kind of the climax of the series. And I love any time that Spidey gets time with the Fantastic Four because they still see him as equal even though he does have that like more street level imposter syndrome going on he's best friends with uh johnny storm him and sue have a really close relationship thing is kind of you know there to give him a hard time like any good uncle and then him and reed always bond over science they share a science five which i love so much um, and they trick Johnny into it having a three-way science five. And it's just, it's so good. I love their interactions together. And bringing in the Fantastic Four to deal with this feels very interconnected without um, feeling like it overshadows the more street-level aspects of the book. Also, heavy hitter, someone who has been... Uh, pretty, I would say, closely aligned to Spider-Man in the comics, especially recently, is uh, Tony Stark. Iron Man is brought in for a short little cameo as part of the Prowler storyline, who also gets uh, some play here. Not the uh, Miles... Not Miles' uncle. I can't remember his name. Oh my god. 
oh, that's going to bother me. Um, anyway, um, not the ultimate Prowler, not Miles' uncle Prowler, but the original Prowler, Hobie Brown, uh, gets some play here as there is a... Um, a plot by a company that filters through uh, like crowdfunding and crowdsourcing and steals that money uh, from places like the Feast Center, which I am always happy to see show up in, in comics. Um, Prowler is trying to go on the straight and narrow. Uh, he's dealing with his girlfriend slash ex-girlfriend because she kind of leaves him when he finds when she finds out that he's still that he's returned to being the prowler but he is he has altruistic intentions he is trying to solve this conspiracy by this company and um to that end he inadvertently enlists spider-man in his uh in his quest by breaking into the feast center to try and find out more information about this company and while they kind of figure out that they are too small potatoes to be able to really do damage to this, you know, very um, well-to-do company, Pete calls in a favor with Tony Stark, uh, Iron Man, and is able to get him to help him out, not by, you know, beating the crap out of him, but by bringing an army of Stark lawyers. And Stark, you know, uh, buys 50, you know, a a majority share in the company so now he owns the company and it's just it's really it's a really great way to subvert the expectations of this story which you know you kind of expect with these kind of stories that you know spider-man and they set this up throughout the rest of the run spider-man fights a final battle he wins and then we all go along our business this is the one fight in the story that really doesn't end with a big climactic battle there is a throwdown there's absolutely part of a throwdown but um the way that everything is solved is through uh i guess you could say corporate uh hostile takeovers so i really enjoyed that that different facet to it and again tying it into the greater marvel universe without making it feel like it overshadows the street level nature of the book but the big um the big kind of underlying story and i don't i don't even know if i want to call it underlying because it's just as important as the main story is uh aunt may Aunt May is a character who has been there just as long as uh, Spidey has. And she has perpetually remained like 85 throughout all the years of Spider-Man's existence in the comics. And they tackle something here that I really, um, I really like. At the end of the first issue of this story, um, Spidey is going to... Uh, have lunch with Mary Jane, their relationship is developing, while uh, Aunt May seems to be writing him a letter. She shows, you know, kind of going through her day, she's worried about something, she's like, you know, I don't like to put stress on you, I don't want to put any undue um, uh, stress in your life, but you know, you see her going through this, you know, kind of day where something seems off. She shows up at this hospital that Wilson Fisk is, like, dedicating, and they're trying to, like, get him good publicity and whatnot. Um, he's funding this hospital, and, like, they try to get her to be like, oh, would you, you know, get, say something nice about uh, Mayor Fisk for the camera? And she, like, straight up just bodies him. She's just like, you know, he's a crook, he's a thief, he's a scumbag by and she leaves and she heads inside and that's i love aunt may she's just she's so good 
Um, but she goes into this hospital and she ends her note by saying, you know, I didn't want to tell you something until uh, I knew more about it. But last week I found a weird lump. And you find out over the course of the story that Aunt May has cancer. And it's a heavy subject. And it is, you know, it casts a shadow over the entire book, over the entire story. And it's heartbreaking because you look at a character like Aunt May and even though she has been through so much, she's died so many times, gone through so many stories, so much hardship, uh, you kind of expect her, just like Alfred, to kind of be around there forever. Uh, Tom King has made it very clear, though, that Alfred does not need to be around there forever and can be killed off at any time because he did it. Um, but Aunt May having cancer is something that I think was a wonderful uh, piece of storytelling to use here. Uh, it's one of those things that I love about superhero comics when they try to tell the story that you can't save everybody despite how powerful you are. It's why I always ascribe to the... Um, the story of Pa Kent dying of a heart attack, if he has to die at all, that Pa Kent dies of a heart attack instead of being carried off in a tornado that could have easily been averted if Superman... Anyway, um, Pa Kent dying of a heart attack teaches uh, Superman and Clark a very specific and um, necessary lesson that despite all the power that he has, he can't save everybody. And that's a lesson that every hero needs to learn at one point or another. And Spider-Man, through all of his uh, incredible abilities, all the hardship he's been through, he can't stop May from having cancer. Um, he even has a great scene with Doctor Strange, who he shows up to, where he's like, you know, he kind of asks without asking, like, could you use your magic to save my aunt? And Doctor Strange tells him, like, there are some things that even my magic can't change um and it puts this real really great perspective onto peter um, we get this story of aunt may going through cancer uh going through treatments there's a great great issue where she goes wig shopping with mary jane and um it's really it's touching it's really really great um she goes through this while all of this other stuff is happening under York, the uh, the city underneath the city that is being ruled over by this dictator and is, you know, has an underground resistance and is liberated by the end of the comic. Um, while all of this, like, fantastical stuff is going on, in the back of your mind, and it's really well done in the story, in the back of your mind, you know Aunt May has cancer. Aunt May has cancer. She's going through treatment. Um, and Peter has to process that, too. You have to stick with Peter, who doesn't know exactly what to do. Um, he talks about, you know, it's this, oh, it's this heartbreaking thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fucking cry. Um, where uh, Aunt May, after telling Peter about having cancer, she's like, I have uh, my first batch of chemo tomorrow and i think it i would really appreciate if you could come and peter doesn't know how to process it he's like i'm really busy and it's this heartbreaking like no peter like that's your aunt that's your mom basically like she's she's going through a hard time she needs this and uh peter is still trying to process it he doesn't know what to do and um aunt may shows up to her first chemo and she's like really unsure she's like i don't know what i'm i don't know how to feel about this it's scary it's very scary um, but Peter's there. He shows up. He's like, 
you know, I read through this book last night about, um, about cancer and chemotherapy. And the one thing that they don't tell you is that chemo is incredibly boring. So I brought us coffee and bagels and it's just, it, oh, oh, I love it. I love it so much. The relationship between Peter and Aunt May is always fantastic. And um, it is really put at the forefront here by making something that wouldn't get a whole lot of screen time in an Avengers story. It basically makes it the main story that um, that it is just as important as the Marnie storyline, as the Under York storyline, all of his interactions with uh, Sevens, because it runs through all of it. You know, she's going through chemotherapy. She is trying to get better. And the cancer is a very real problem that Spider-Man just can't fight. And that's um, that's part of one of the best issues of this. I want to talk about my three favorite issues from this. And that is, um, I'm going to start off with Spider-Bite. Spider-Bite wraps up kind of the first arc by um, Spider-Man essentially doing like a Make-A-Wish thing with a kid. Um, it starts off with Spider-Man, you know, fighting some of his normal rogues, and he gets assisted by Spider-Bite, his new sidekick. And I love this. You know, the two of them are palling around, saying all of the, you know, cheesy dialogue between the two of them. They fight basically his entire rogues gallery, including Doc Ock, who at this point is still a superior Spider-Man. Um, and I th- I was just like, oh, this is really interesting. I'm not sure where they're going with this. And then finally they get to um, the reveal, which is that Spider-Bite isn't a real sidekick, um, at least not in the sense that you think. Because you find out that their adventure throughout the entire day was um, was a role play. That Spider-Man was visiting this kid with cancer. And that the two of them were reenacting or enacting or acting out this fantasy of the kid to be Spider-Man for a day. And it's this really heartbreaking story because... Um, it gave me a lot of the same feels as, like, uh, The Kid Who Collects Spider-Man, an incredible Spider-Man story. If you haven't heard of it, look it up, read it. I'm not going to spoil it. I'm not going to talk about it because you need to experience it for yourself. Um, this story is just really uh, about Spider-Man kind of making things easier for this kid. Um, after they finish playing, they're like, oh man, you gotta go rest, you gotta go sleep, and the kid, like, freaks out. He has, like, just, he has this fit where he's like, I don't want to go to bed, I'm not tired, and immediately he's just like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, and Spidey's like, it's okay, dude, it's okay, like, you're under a lot of stress, just get a little bit of rest, and, you know, we'll, we'll figure this out, and he talks to his parents, and this is, oof, oof, this book's emotional, this book's really emotional. Um, he talks to the kid, the to the kid's parents, and they're like, the reason he doesn't want to go sleep is because he is really sick and he might not wake up. And ugh, um, he uh, it makes it very real instantly. This like really um, fantastical, like action-packed story that the first half of the issue was. Um, suddenly becomes very real and very raw. And you realize that this kid probably doesn't have a lot of time left. And, um, you know, Spidey is kind of confronted with this. And I think this is a perfect story to tell over the course of this arc of Spider-Man dealing with um, 
Aunt May's cancer because this is almost for him. It's like, what would I do if Aunt May was in this position? If she was dying and she only had, you know, like a day left or, you know, a couple days or a week or a month. And um, Spidey talks to the kid and he lets him know, like, hey, like, we're here, we're strong, we're together, I'm with you. And he tells him, you know, you know, like, you wanted a whole day to be Spider-Man. And the kid's like, yeah, that was my, that was my wish. And he's like, okay, well, uh, grab a coat because your day's not over yet. And the final image is of Spider-Man swinging off into the city with this kid on his back. And to give someone who is going through something so terrible at such a young age is, um, it's inspiring. It's really, really inspiring. Um, I would, I would say, if you don't read this this whole series, which you absolutely should, you should read this issue. Um, I believe I might be wrong. I think it's issue six, but it's called it's the Spider Bite issue. Um, but it's fantastic, and it puts things really into perspective on how, um, again, you know, these these people who are going through something that Spider-Man can't punch. He has to focus on trying to make the biggest difference in their lives that he can with uh, the resources that he has. And I love that. Um, Another issue that I love is the Mary Jane issue. Um, I think, oh, it's issue 11, I think. Um, But it starts off with um, kind of the aftermath of the War of the Realms, which was uh, last year's big comic event that I loved. I loved dearly. Um, Where basically uh, Malekith, the Dark Elf, no, not the one from the MCU, um, amasses this army from eight of the nine realms uh, and brings them to America and basically conquers it. you get to see trolls and ice or frost giants, um, dark elves, all of these different creatures running roughshod over New York, over all over the world. And um, what ends up happening in the aftermath of it, after everything is, you know, all said and done, is that uh, there's still remnants. There's still creatures who, you know, made their way to Earth, but were kind of shut out from going back home. So uh, the issue kind of kicks off with Spidey you know, showing up to his apartment with MJ um, after spending the night fighting a troll under a bridge. And he's just like, I am so tired. (laughs) Uh, Perpetually tired Spider-Man is one of my favorite Spider-Mans. It's one of my favorite lines from End of the Spider-Verse, where he's like, I'm so tired. Um, But he shows up as uh, MJ is kind of waking up, and he's like, I brought bagels from that place you like. Um, and he's like, we got to take a quick break and then I got to go back out there and fight some more, you know, mystical creatures. But he's so exhausted that he starts to kind of fall asleep while they're eating. And Mary Jane kind of helps him to bed. He's, she's like, get some rest. I will keep the city safe while you're gone, which is one of those, it's just, you know, one of those cute things that, you know, uh, that you would expect Mary Jane to say to be like, you know, go to sleep. I'll keep the safe, the city safe while you're gone. Um, just fully expecting that, oh, it's just going to be kind of a normal day. Things are going to, you know, happen as they happen. But what ends up happening, um, and I don't know if this is the issue where they go wig shopping. I think it might be. Um, but 
Mary Jane kind of just goes throughout her day doing her thing. And at the end of the day, she's heading home on the train when the subway, the subway train runs smack dab into another troll. And she has to, um, she has to basically like maneuver her way to help everyone escape while also dealing with the troll. And fearless Mary Jane is just, it's, it's incredible. I love it so much. Um, Mary Jane, you know, distracts the troll while everyone gets away. And at the last moment, you know, as the troll is about to like crush her, both of its fists get webbed up and it gets yanked back. And you're like, oh, shoot, Spidey, you know, uh, Peter woke up. But no, it's Miles Morales. Um, Miles, you know, shows up. She's, he's like, what are you doing here? She's like, what are you doing here? And so um, it's just, again, building out the world, making it feel more fleshed out uh, by, you know, showcasing that again. There is another Spidey running around. Um, and after Miles, you know, defeats the troll, uh, MJ kind of gives this, you know, very like, it was very Spider-Man. And she kind of gives... Without really, like, going through a whole, like, formal thing, she gives him the blessing. She's just like, you're Spider-Man. You're just as much Spider-Man as he is. Uh, inspiring him. And it shows kind of the effect that Mary Jane has on people. Um, she also uses her resources to, like, call Tony Stark, hearkening back to when she was uh, Tony's secretary when Pepper took a leave of absence. Uh, basically tells him, like, hey, there's a troll you need to come clean up. So it kind of shows where Mary Jane kind of falls in the hierarchy when it comes to uh, the super, the greater superhero world. And at the end of the issue, she comes back. Peter's just, like, waking up. He's like, oh, what happened? And she's like, oh, you know, I fought a troll under a bridge. And he's like, yeah, huh? wait, what? And they just kind of have this really nice touching moment. And I loved it, you know, spotlighting their relationship and why the two of them work so well together was really well done. And then the finale, the final issue, um, basically ties up everything. Um, the under York situation gets solved by bringing in the fantastic four, helping out the resistance. Um, the guy is deposed, all this stuff. Uh, but the final issue you know, they wrap up, you know, the big Under York storyline in issue 13. And so I'm like, oh, there's another issue. What are we going to deal with? Oh, no. We're dealing with... Oh, we're dealing with Aunt May's cancer for the final issue. And I love how that, while kind of being uh, kind of the... Um, the A story... The co-A storyline. That's the word I was looking for. Um it takes center stage for the very final issue and uh they find out that her her uh her chemotherapy has been working the size of the tumor has reduced so they're going to put her in for surgery and so the night of um of aunt may's surgery spidey you know the issue starts off with a flashback where um Uncle Ben and Aunt May are kind of dealing with the fact that uh, young Peter tried to run away. It's very early on, um, and Ben is just like, you know, I don't know what to do. Like, he he shouldn't have run away, and May is like, you shouldn't have yelled at him. And it's, you know, one of those things that we kind of don't expect in that we kind of see uh, Ben Parker as this, like, holier-than-thou, not holier-than-thou, but he is um, this kind of... Uh, unreachable, um, oh, what's the word? This unreachable example that, like, everyone kind of strives to be. Um, 
and we again you know they show that he's just he's human he was scared you know this small boy who they were just put in charge of tried to run away and aunt may has this conversation with peter where you know he's like this isn't my home like you're not my mom and she's like this is your home now and i know you're scared i know you feel alone but you're not alone you know go to sleep and i will be here when you wake up and he does and when he wakes up he finds aunt may is still you know in the room she slept in the room you know in a chair and she's like you know peter wakes up he's like aunt may and she's like i'm here and it's a great way to start it off by really selling their relationship so peter goes into the hospital he tells may you know you're gonna be okay and he gives her the same promise that she gave him he says i will be here when you wake up and um she goes in for surgery. They kind of tell him, like, hey, you know, surgery's going to take a few hours. Like, you should go home and get some rest. He's like, no. I told her I was going to be here when she woke up, and I'm going to be here. And um, the power goes out across the city. Across the city. Um, it's a, it's an engineered blackout by this, you know, this punk kid. But um, Spidey is just like, no, I can't go. I told May I was going to be here. You know, the... Uh, backup generators for the hospital kick on and you know they're able to continue their work but spidey's like i can't i can't i told may i was going to be here i'm going to be here but because spidey is who he is he you know there, there's this great um line that may, that uh mj says a couple times over the course of the story where she's like everybody knows you know spider-man's mantra is with great power comes great responsibility but not everybody knows that peter thinks that everything is his responsibility and i love that that is something about the character that i have always really connected with um feeling responsible for things even when there is no possible way that you are responsible for them is um something that i've struggled with for most of my life um blaming myself for things that uh, were completely out of my control. And that's something that I have to work on. Even today, it's something that I still struggle with. And that is something that I that's always endeared me to Spider-Man, to Peter Parker. And so I love that Peter is just like, I can't. I have to I have to go solve this. I have to go fix this because people will be in trouble. And you see as he swings off into the city, uh, Shocker is taking advantage of this. He's trying to rob an armored car and Spider-Man shows up to like take him down. But uh, Miles is there. Marnie is there. They're like, what are you doing here? And Peter's like, what am I doing here? What are you guys doing here? This isn't your jurisdiction. And they're like, we know you need to be somewhere. So we all talked about it and we've got the city covered tonight. You see throughout the city, even though there's this blackout going on, um, the street level characters, Marnie, Miles, Human Torch even, uh, the Defenders, like they're all across New York because Spider-Man had to be somewhere. Oh, I'm getting emotional again. Um, and it's, you know, it sells that this story is built on family and community. That they all came together and decided we are going to make for one night a New York that doesn't need Spider-Man so that he can be there for his aunt. Um, oh, I'm tearing up. Wow. This is, uh, this, is, this is an emotional book. I mean it. I mean it. This is one of the best Spider-Man stories I've read. Um, and so Spider-Man, you know, does his, ma 
his I was going to say his magic-y thing, but his techy thing, uh, finds the source of the blackout and finds out that it's this kid living in the suburbs who um, engineered, he's the super genius who engineered this blackout to basically just, uh, as a statement, to show that he can. Uh, Spidey confronts him and he tells him, like, you need to turn the power back on because you have made my life so hard and I'm dealing with something right now. And the guy is immediate, the kid is immediately like, okay, shut it down, pull the power back on, put the power back on. And Spidey's like, wait, what, really? Like, that's it? And again, subverts the expectation. I was like, whoa, wait, what? And uh, the kid like looks up at him and he's just like, we know how hard you work for the city. We know the things that you do. And I'm sorry that I made your life harder. And again, like, it's just, oh, this last issue is a perfect Spider-Man story. I don't like using the word perfect because I think that it's subjective and it puts a lot of undue stress on creators and stories. But this is a perfect Spider-Man issue. It just is. Um, and the kid is just like, you you find out about this kid that he's a super genius, but he was abandoned. Um, and that he, being a super genius, was able to hack into files and was and is living by himself through the means of using his genius to set up like this shell family. This fake uh, parents that, you know, are an astronaut and an engineer or something like that. And um, he's able to live because of his technical expertise. And Spidey is like, thank you for turning the lights on and I'm going to talk to talk to some people about you, you know, and we assume like Tony Reed, someone who can give him purpose, someone who can give him a family of his own. And it, once again, it speaks to the theme of family and community by Spidey going to this kid who is alone and has learned to be alone and telling him like, you don't have to be alone anymore. You can be part of something. And, um, he shows back up shows back up after the lights get turned back on um uh the street level characters band together to make a new york that doesn't need spider-man for a night and the issue ends very simply very um succinctly with aunt may waking up after her success after her successful surgery and she's like peter and he's like i'm here and um huh, 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 um it's not just perfect symmetry with how the book starts, but it's uh, or how the issue starts, but it's perfect symmetry with how the story starts. By um, May feeling like she's alone because she's dealing with something that she doesn't want to put uh, onto Peter in the uh, hopes to not give him any undue stress. She feels alone because she doesn't want to put... Uh, this kind of responsibility on Peter, because as we established, he thinks that everything is his responsibility. And um, she wakes up and she's not alone because of what has been there all along, and that's Peter. So um, those are my kind of three favorite issues, the spider bite issue, the MJ issue, and the the finale, the final issue. Um, I think it's 6, 11, and 14. All these issues are great. They're all stunning when it comes to art. They're all fantastic stories. Um, Those were my favorites just because they really sell the themes and the message of this book, which is um, family. It is community. It is this idea that 
you aren't alone. Even in your darkest days, even when you are um, going through something, even when you are uh, feeling alone, you're not alone. There is somebody there for you. Even if it doesn't feel like it, even if it feels you're facing these insurmountable odds, um, trust in yourself, trust in your family, trust in your community, and um, trust in the fact that you're not alone. So, um, in conclusion, <laughs> um, this book is emotional. It really is. Um, I didn't expect to have this many feels. I didn't expect to have uh, these this much uh, emotion, Just even just talking about it. Uh, much less reading through it. It's a fantastic story. Um, Tom Taylor, again, he gets Spider-Man. He gets the heart of the character. Uh, this idea that he feels responsible for everything. This idea that he will help even if it inconveniences him or it puts stress on him. Uh, the fact that he is, even though he does go through these things, he isn't alone because of the community and the connections he's made. Um it's just honestly, it's a fantastic story. It's an incredible series that I would absolutely recommend you pick up. You can pick up both volumes at your local comic book shop on Amazon. Uh, you can do it on Comixology. That's how I read it. Um, it's just a fantastic book that really gets at the core of Spider-Man. This is through and through a Spider-Man book. I know sometimes we talk about books that feel like uh, they take characters in a way that feels out of character for them. Um, I will say until the day that I die that The Dark Knight Returns doesn't fundamentally understand Superman. It doesn't get Superman, and it just uses him as a plot device um, and does things that are out of character for Superman. Um, but this really sells the idea that they understand Spider-Man. They get Spider-Man. They know who Spider-Man is. They know what he represents. And they know who Peter Parker is. They know that with great power comes great responsibility. And the power of having a character like Spider-Man at your fingertips is it makes you responsible for treating him the way that he's supposed to be treated. And this book does a fantastic job of that. Um, if for nothing else, read the three issues that I talked about. They're all great Spider-Man issues. The finale is a perfect Spider-Man issue. You can put it up against the greatest issues of Spider-Man, and it will rest comfortably there. Um, I'm so you know, mad at myself because I'm kicking myself because I didn't jump on this when it was uh, coming out. But I'm so glad that I finally jumped onto the story. And it is a, it's a great lesson. You know, sometimes we can get really caught up in the, uh, in the larger than life events, you know, the world shattering multiverse breaking events that Spider-Man can be part of or any of these characters can be part of. But sometimes it really is good to return to your friendly neighborhood. It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And right now we are reviewing season two of Doom Patrol, specifically episode number seven entitled 
Dumb Patrol. Um, and this episode I thought was really great because it continues this weird through line of the uh, Eisman collection. Uh, Eisman, as we talked about previously, is a fairly uh, fairly important uh, Doom Patrol character from Grant Morrison's run, and I'm glad that they're kind of peppering in his uh, these references these references to him. Um, a big change for this episode is that Miranda's in charge. Miranda is primary once again, and we get to see how very different she is from Jane, from really any of the um, of the multiple personalities. And once again, I just I have to give props to Diane Guerrero, who is just so good. She's so good at what she does. Um, and she is, uh, she does such a great job at making each personality so different and distinct. And Miranda is very responsible. She knows how to cook. She is just a very good person. And um, she goes through basically trying to be the voice of reason, which I think is an interesting role for, um, for Jane to take. And so I had a great time kind of like seeing the weird dichotomy there um, to kind of pair off of that uh, Robot Man. Robot Man has, like I thought from, uh, from last week, been just launched into space and lands so far away from everyone else. Um, and he is, he has to resort to hitchhiking. There's this funny moment where his legs just kind of stop moving and this just total like stoner bro like shows up um is trying to like take pictures with him he's like whoa like a talking statue and uh cliff has to keep giving shout outs to his friends so that he can use his phone um it was really just it was really fun it was really fun um cliff is fantastic uh, and it was kind of good since most of the season and really most of the show is very centered around cliff to get some time away from him while he kind of took a back seat. Uh, Rita. Rita did some research. She has uh, taken the role of the beekeeper in the uh, in the Our Town play, uh, chronicling the event from the first episode. And so she meets an actual beekeeper, uh, the person who was uh, there at the, uh, at the incident. And it's this great... It's this great moment where she kind of gets to sit down with the woman who is very, has a lot of similar qualities to, uh, to Rita's mom, to her own mother. Uh, I thought it was funny when they, when, uh, the beekeeper was like, come on, you need some therapy. Always helps me to scream at the bees. And like Rita's just trying to like yell at these bees and it's just not working for her. Uh, but she does come upon a mugging on her way back to uh, the mansion and she dresses up in her beekeeper costume and stops the mugging. And I just... Rita becoming a superhero called the beekeeper is going to be a hella fun ride. I cannot wait. Um, while all this is going on, um, a crate shows up. A crate shows up, and when uh, the Doom Patrol of, or the group, I guess, of uh, Vic, Ronnie, and um, Larry open it, they find that it's the painting that uh, Mr. Nobody and Beard Hunter were trapped in, but they can't see them in it. And the painting, as we come to find out, is uh, 
infested with scants. Scants are these little like microscopic creatures that um, basically feed off bad ideas, and they secrete this like this mist or this um, I don't even know what they called it to be honest, but it like makes you want to uh, do bad decisions. And so Larry takes Flit, who is the teleporting personality of Jane. Uh, to visit his grandson in the hospital, which was a great reveal. His grandson is not dead. Fantastic. Thumbs up from me. Um, even though it's just, it's so dumb. Because, like, obviously the uh, Bureau of Normalcy is there to arrest him. So they disappear to a different place in the hospital. And Larry's just like, we'll dress up in doctor coats. They won't see through our disguise. <laughs> and they absolutely do because he's still covered in bandages. And they go to the exact same receptionist. I love it. Um, so meanwhile, Vic and Ronnie are like, you know, again, influenced by these bad decisions. And they're like you know, we should operate on you and like all this stuff. And the only person who seemingly isn't affected is Miranda, which I thought was really interesting. Um, they end up deciding to go into the painting to, to uh, figure out how to beat the scants. And they run into the beard hunter who has disguised himself by painting the entire front half of his body white to, I guess, camouflage himself from the scants. And I guess it works. It's weird. Um, there's a great moment where they, they're like, oh, where's Mr. Nobody? And Beard Hunter just basically goes, oh, you know, he got a job, you know, with this animated property. We haven't seen him before. And in the corner of the screen, it just says, Harley Quinn streaming now. Because uh, the actor who plays Mr. Nobody, Alan Tudyk, also plays the Joker on Harley Quinn. And I love that. I love that even in these, you know, they've kind of done away with the fourth wall breaks. They still bring it back whenever Mr. Nobody is involved. I really, really appreciated that. The scants are basically, like, just weird, like, things and creatures. I thought it was, I it's, it's appropriately ridiculous, as it should be. Um... So they were funny. They were weird. Um, they find out that uh, the queen is basically going to harvest the um, smoke that comes out of their ears every time they make a mad decision called idiot. And <laughs> oh, it's so dumb. And turns it into, I think it's called Oja Juice. Um, they end up, uh, Jane and I, I think it's, um, oh, I can't remember. I can't remember the name. I think it's Hammerhead. Hammerhead is the one that creates the uh, the bladed words, I think. I don't remember. One of them. Um, they kill the scant queen, which kills all the other scants, and uh, they escape. But it looks like Ronnie keeps some of the Oja juice, so we're going to have to see exactly how that um how that affects the story later. Meanwhile, we catch up with Niles and Dorothy, and they seem to have gone back to where Niles met Dorothy's mom, and Niles officially meets the Candlemaker. And the Candlemaker kind of reveals himself as this uh, otherworldly, interdimensional creature that was created by uh the indigenous people that uh, Dorothy's mother was a part of, and that he will just keep coming if... Um, as long as Dorothy is breathing, he will keep coming. He's getting stronger and he will cleave the world in two, as Niles said last episode. So um, it looks like at the end of the episode, uh, um, Niles is going to kill 
Dorothy for the sake of the world. And he hires Willoughby Kipling, who also was involved in the uh, the scant storyline, which I liked, um, to kill her. Um, it's not explicitly stated, so they might be, you know, giving us like a red herring, thinking that we're going to kill her when he maybe he's going to try and exercise her. But um, it was chilling. It was very chilling. Uh, and equally as chilling is the developments in the underground because um, Jane is kind of enjoying not being primary anymore, and she encounters. I think it's the um, uh, it's the it's the something's beautiful daughter. I can't remember the name. The hangman's beautiful daughter. I think I don't know. Um, who basically tells her like, "Hey, have you seen Scarlet Harlot? Like, she was supposed to be part of a book group, and she hasn't shown up. She's missing." And so Jane goes down to Scarlet Harlot Station and finds that the station is closed. So um, there's some nefarious stuff going on. Miranda might be the voice of reason when it came to this specific adventure, but we're gonna get something darker i think with her going on so i'm really excited the episode was fantastic once again it was a great little kind of stopgap that i really enjoyed as kind of both a throwback to the weirdness of season one while also pushing forward the story inching it a closer to uh the finale which is coming up in just a couple weeks so uh tune in next week for episode eight entitled dad patrol that should be fun and uh for now we're gonna roll right on into this week's comics countdown welcome back to this week's comics countdown this is the segment of our show where i talk about the comics that i think you should be picking up this week whether it's at your local comic book shop on comiXology or however you get your comics these are the ones i think you should definitely take a look at but before we get into this week's comics let's take a look back at last week's comics with the geek explain pick of the week of last week and for me it was kind of a uh, a toss-up between two books but after thinking about it rereading both of the issues i I've decided that the Geeksplain Pick of the Week for last week is Batman number 95, written by James Tynan IV with art by George Jimenez. Uh, this is the start of Joker War. It is everything that the... Uh, that last week's issue was kind of, or last week's episode was kind of building up towards the kickoff for Joker War. Uh, nothing is off the table here. It was a fantastic story. The art is amazing. And this is going to be a hell of a ride. We already saw uh, Batman have to retake the city from Bane at the end of uh, Tom King's run. So I'm hoping that they do something a little bit different here because he's essentially having to retake the city back again, this time from the Joker. So we'll see what they do. I'm looking forward to it, though. Uh, the issue was really good. Gave us some some interesting information. There's a really just terrifying and haunting uh, torture scene between uh, Punchline and um, Lucius Fox. It's really, really well done. I'm really enjoying Punchline. I think it's I think she's a great addition to the roster um, of. Batman's rogues and I think she's she's gonna be she's gonna have some staying power fingers crossed but that was last week let's talk about this week this week we've got five books for you to check out across Marvel and DC and we're gonna kick it off with Batman Superman number 10 written by Joshua Williamson with art by Clayton Henry um this book is uh is finally back I've been waiting for the book to pick back up um Clayton Henry is the new artist for this run uh so far we've had David Marquez, we've had Nick Darrington, Clayton Henry is, um, as we talked about, I think last week, uh, going to be taking on the Flash book post, uh, 
Williamson's actual run on uh, on the Flash. So I think this is a fun little uh, fun little crossover between the uh, present and future of the Flash book. But let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Devastation in Gotham City. Following the events of a massive explosion in Midtown, Batman and Superman pick up the pieces to learn who rigged the atomic skull like a bomb. And will they do it again? All will be revealed as the horrific plan of the ultra-humanite rains terror down on the lives of the Dark Knight and the Man of Steel. So, we're getting ultra-humanite back. I love ultra-humanite. He is a very underserved character. He's fun. He's one of the first big uh super villains ever created in comics if you want to uh, get a little bit of information on that debut check out our superman and the uh, history of social justice episode one of my personal favorite episodes uh but yeah i'm looking forward to this the book has been really solid so far i'm interested to see what they're going to do with the book now that um the death metal stuff is going on how that's going to affect it uh because it's been very up to this point uh very uh centered and focused on the Batman who laughs and his whole plot. So I'm looking forward to seeing what they do. Next up, we have a brand new number one over on the side of Marvel, and that is X-Factor number one, written by Leah Williams with art by David Baldione. I may have said that incorrect, and I apologize. But this book is really interesting. Um, Let's talk about the... uh, Let's do the uh, synopsis first, and then we'll talk about the book. Mutants have conquered death. By the grace of the five, the resurrection protocols can bring back any fallen mutant. But such a huge enterprise isn't without its problems and complications. When a mutant dies, X-Factor is there to investigate how and why to keep the rules of reincarnation. Writer Leah Williams and artist David Baldione take Northstar, Polaris, Prodigy, iBoy, Dokken, and Prestige into the world of murder and missing persons. So this is kind of promising to be like a detective noir story talking about like death when it comes to X-Men because Jonathan Hickman broke death when it comes to any of the X-Men titles or any of the mutants really because they can just be brought back. Um, there's a lot of discussion on, you know, what if you know, is there, do these mutants have souls? Are they just um, clones? All of this stuff I think is really interesting. And I like this roster. Um, North Star is a great character. Polaris is fantastic. Putting Polaris with Prestige, I really like having the two kind of daughters of the um, preeminent mutants, that being uh, Jean Grey and Magneto, on the same team. Makes the team almost feel overpowered, but I really like them together as a pairing and another legacy character with Dokken as probably their enforcer I think is really cool I'm a sucker for iBoy I love me some iBoy I think he's fantastic and I love to see him and Prodigy is fantastic too I'm really looking forward to seeing what he brings to the team it's an interesting book that I didn't think would pique my interest but after uh, kind of researching and looking into the synopsis and what the book is kind of promising I'll pick it up and I think you should too Next up, we have Legion of Superheroes number seven, written by Brian Michael Bendis with art by Ryan Sook. This book's been fantastic so far. Um, It's been just really, really great, and I've been really enjoying it. Um, This is building off of the reveal of last uh, last issue. I can't even remember when that last issue came out. I think it was last month. We'll see. Um, 
But the Legion is under arrest, and they are being uh, prosecuted by the United Planets. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Jonathan Kent, intergalactic fugitive. The United Planets is less than thrilled with the decision to bring Superboy a thousand years into the future to protect the past. Planet Gotham is under siege. Ultra Boy's homeworld is on the verge of all-out war. And as if that weren't enough, new Legionnaire drama unfolds as Saturn Girl and Cosmic Boy throw down over who should take over the lead the legion's leadership plus brainiac 5 will reveal a secret that will make one legionnaire quit the team and we ask the burning question who's the strongest legionnaire find out in the only book telling you the future of the dc universe every month so that's a lot <laughs> to pack into this book i love that this book is an ensemble i love that it truly actually feels like an ensemble book like yeah a lot of the pov is from uh, John Kent, but I love that they're giving storylines and character development to all of these characters. I believe Ultra Boy's homeworld is the world that Monel is now technically the king of. So, uh, crossing my fingers for more Monel stuff. Really, I've just been loving this book, and I can't wait to read it. Next up, we have X-Men number 10, written by Jonathan Hickman, with art by R.B. Silva. Uh, this is an Empire tie-in. Uh, this is dealing with all of the Empire stuff. The x-men tie-in to this empire x-men i thought was really good i ended up picking it up just because anything that jonathan hickman is um really invested in and involved in i think is good to keep up on and they had a really great uh opening with that with scarlet witch consulting with um with dr strange on whether she should use her reality bending powers to um reverse her no more mutants moment and instead she ends up going to and i couldn't believe this genosha she goes to genosha to try and revive all the mutants that were killed there at the beginning of the grant morrison run and what she ends up doing is she brings them back as zombies really love that development and i hope that we get to see some kind of development on that but uh, let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis the summer's family has grown a Krakoan home on the moon. Now, some new neighbors have moved in. So, this kind of promises that they're going to be running smack dab into the space battle that's happening between the combined Kree-Skrull uh, army against the Avengers and Fantastic Four. Um, can't wait to see what they do. Can't wait to see uh, how the Summers family reacts to this, especially because uh, the last time that... Um, what is his name uh the third summer's brother the third summer's brother why can't i remember his code name that's i'm 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 sorry i gotta look that up i can't third summer's brother that is vulcan vulcan uh the last time that vulcan really had any uh contact with any of these you know space-bound empires was during the war of kings so i'm really looking forward to seeing how he reacts to this we haven't given a whole lot of time to vulcan uh prior to this so far in the x-men book so this might be the place that he kind of steps up so that would be really cool to see but the big book of the week the book i think you should absolutely be picking up in the book that i I think I'm the most excited about this week is Wonder Woman number seven, 
Let me make sure I get this right. Wonder Woman number 759, written by Mariko Tamaki with art by Mikkel Janine. Uh, we talked about this back when this was announced. This is a brand new arc for Wonder Woman. This is a brand new creative team, a uh, team that I am super excited for. Uh, Mariko Tamaki's fantastic. I love Mikkel Janine's art. This is going to be great. I really, I just... <sighs> I love it so much, and I'm really, really excited. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. It's a brand new day for Wonder Woman, as Diana starts to pick up the pieces of her life following her battle with the Four Horsewomen and her run-in with the Phantom Stranger. Man's world has become more complicated to navigate than ever before. It seems everyone has a take on who Wonder Woman should be, some who look on her heroics with admiration, and some who lie in wait to seek revenge. A familiar threat is watching Diana's every move, and now is the perfect time to strike. So, I'm really excited about this. The creative team's killer. Uh, Wonder Woman is just a fantastic character who is... This is going to be a book to watch, especially as we're moving towards the uh, release of Wonder Woman 84. Um, I love the premise of this, bringing in um, the promise. I I think everyone remembers the uh, the teaser images of what looks like Wonder Woman fighting Jaegers from, uh, from uh, Pacific Rim. I'm really excited about just the espionage aspect of it, of it too. I haven't been keeping up too much with Wonder Woman uh, so far, so I don't recognize the two people uh, next to her on the cover. But they do look a little bit decked out in spy gear. So uh, Wonder Woman dealing with espionage is something new to the character as well. It's a book I think you should definitely pick up, especially if you're a fan of the character, because this is the start of a creative team that I think is going to be sticking around for quite some time. And that is it for this week's comic countdown to recap we have batman superman number 10 x factor number one legion of superheroes number seven x-men number 10 and wonder woman number 759 and that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us on the Geek Explain podcast, please feel free to subscribe on the podcasting platform of your choice. And also, it would really help me out and really help the podcast out if you gave us a rating and review. Uh, if you do end up giving us a five-star review and rating on iTunes, I will read out your review on the air. You can say whatever you want. You can join such esteemed geeks as ND and Josh from Panels to Pixels whose reviews I have read on the podcast. And overall, just the ratings and reviews really helps us out, really uh, raises our stock when it comes to the podcasting platforms and uh, gets us gets the word of our podcast out and into the orbit of listeners just like you. Also, if you would like to have uh, any questions read, any questions answered, whether it's about comics, TV, film, anything, video games, you want to ask my favorite stuff, feel free to write into the podcast to be part of the Geeksplain mailbag. Uh, you can send your emails to geeksplain at gmail.com. No new emails this week, but I am hoping that next week will change that. I would love to interact with some more of you on this. Um, you can also feel free to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod. I've had a lot of great uh, discussions. That's also where you can find links to the newest episodes as soon as they drop. So feel free to give us a follow on that to keep up with 
us. Um, and I would love to know what you think about everything we talked about this week. Are you excited for the new creative team for Wonder Woman? Have you been watching Doom Patrol? What is your favorite Spider-Man book? I would love to have that conversation with you. Uh, feel free to tweet it at me, whatever, email me, talk about your favorite Spider-Man book. Um, I think mine is still probably Spider-Man Blue. I still love that book with all of my heart, but Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man is definitely, definitely up there on the list. Probably in my top uh, probably top 10 top 15 I would say so uh, tune in next week we are entering August as we continue on with the uh, summer quarantine saga uh, I'm you know we're doing well over here I am back to work slowly uh, as you know LA tries to figure out what's going on with its pandemic response we don't know we don't know what's happening they don't know what's happening we're just gonna keep riding whatever is happening now um so i will keep you all updated on what's going on with me otherwise doing fine here thank you very much for listening i really do appreciate it and uh tune in next week for a brand new episode of the geek Explained podcast same geek time same geek channel but for now for geek Explained, this is eric azana thank you very much for listening stay safe and we will see you next time Spider-Man does whatever a spider can Spins a web any size Catches thieves just like flies Look out, here comes the Spider-Man Is he strong? Listen, buddy He's got radioactive blood Can he swing from a thread? Take a look overhead Hey there there goes the Spider-Man In the chill of night At the scene of a crime Like a streak of light He arrives just in time Spider-Man, Spider-Man Friendly neighborhood Spider-Man Well then fame he's ignored Action is his reward Look out, here comes the Spider-Man Friendly neighborhood Spider-Man Well, fame, he's ignored Action is his reward Look out, here comes the Spider-Man In the chill of night At the scene of a crime Like a streak of light He arrives just in time Spider-Man
comes the spider man. 